This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu forward slash store to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Intellectual Schizophrenia Culture, Crisis and Education by Russus J. Rushduni. Copyright 1961, Dorothy Rushduni and the Rushduni Irrevocable Trust. Calcedon, Ross House Books. Chapter 3. The Unity of Learning Heretofore, every culture has had its means of educating its young into the meaning of their heritage. The learning of and initiation into the life of that society has not been a question of coercion, but a means of life. As a result, education has not been a problem, but an assumed part of life, essential to maturity to the assumption of their destined roles of man or woman, farmer, hunter or warrior. This, of course, is no longer true. Society has reached a degree of security and self-consciousness which has separated culture from life and made it, on the one hand, a self-conscious striving after superiority, status or higher values, and on the other, a reduction of culture to protected and indulged folk feelings which imply a contempt of those who seek advance. Again, society has ceased to be society and has become pluralistic and atomistic. A man has no common life with most of society and seeks a limited circle as his arena of activity, an arena in terms of which, rather than in terms of the total society and its faith, he seeks status. It has been said that ours is a pluralistic society because of its very progress, and pluralism is essential to our development out of the unity of folk culture, and, in a sense, we can most definitely agree with this. There is, however, a difference between an atomistic culture and a pluralistic one. The one has a variety of competing meanings, each with its inner unity and integrity, whereas the other is the collapse of society into its fragmentary elements. Ostensibly, Western culture, having its varying representatives of Christian churches, humanism in a variety of forms, and other cultural divisions, is pluralistic. But the pluralism is nominal, external and extrinsic. Actually, an atomistic society is one reduced to certain common denominators, which fail to sustain any single element. The possibility of deep-rooted tensions tends to be reduced because meaning is reduced. The tensions which are generated are in terms of power and control rather than meaning. This is no less true of communists today than any other group. Their concern is not the spread of world socialism, but the control of the world by their particular form of it. Churches are likewise less concerned over doctrine and more over power. What, in brief, is this current common denominator? Christianity has by and large been debased into vague and sentimental love of man, a reduction of God into love alone, and an anarchistic conception of the requirements of love. No more telling instance of this can be cited than the widely acclaimed and extensively used Basic Christian Ethics of Paul Ramsey, 1950, Associate Professor of Religion at Princeton University, 
This same element, in other forms, appears in the Church of Rome, of which Francis of Assisi was an early representative. With this also goes divinizing strains. Notice the implications of the following statements by the editor of a current edition of an old ascetic manual. Quote, Deification is the ultimate fulfilling of human nature's capacity for God. Deification and salvation are the same. End quote. Humanism has become a vague belief in man and in values, but becomes progressively more incapable of defining values, and in existentialism is in full-fledged retreat from life. Accordingly, if we are to understand the concept of the unity of learning from the biblical perspective, we must re-examine it in terms of its basic concepts, ones largely bypassed in the current anarchistic and sentimentalized forms of Christianity. Let us examine, very briefly, some of the statements of Proverbs 8 alone. Number one, the world was created by wisdom, and wisdom was the principle of its creation, verses 22 to 31. Number two, man was a part of wisdom's plan of creation, quote, and my delight was with the sons of men, end quote, verse 31. Number three, wisdom summons man to live in terms of wisdom and in righteousness, verses 1 to 12 and 32 to 36. Number four, wisdom mediates between God and man, verses 32 to 35. Number five, the love of wisdom is the love of life, quote, but he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. End quote. Verse 36. Number 6. Wisdom is the ground of all law and order, of all peace and prosperity, of life itself. Verses 13 to 21. Turning now to the New Testament, we find the same concept of wisdom set forth. 1. Jesus Christ declared himself to be wisdom. Luke 7, 34 and 35, Matthew 1, 19. 2. Jesus Christ is declared to be the Word, Logos, or Wisdom of God, John 1, 1 to 17. 3. He spoke of his pre-existence, John 8, 58. 4. Paul also declared him to be the Logos, or Wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 24, 30. Compare Romans 13.27 and Colossians 2.3 Returning again to Proverbs 8.15 we find this important declaration quote, By me kings reign and princes decree justice end quote. Enforcing their presuppositions on scripture men have reversed the meaning of this statement assuming it merely to be the ordination of secular governments in actuality, far more is involved here. Quote, By me kings reign and princes decree justice, end quote, means that the very ground of justice is wisdom itself, that, apart from wisdom, there is no decree of justice, no law nor order, that the ground of all life, of all law and order, of all structure, all design and creation, comes from God. This same principle is developed by Paul in Ephesians, where we have an amazingly far-reaching declaration of the meaning of the glorified Christ for all of life. 
In that context, in Ephesians 3.15, Paul speaks of God as a father of all families, or, more literally, the father of all fatherhoods. Later, in Ephesians 5.22 and 23, he speaks of the marital relationship of husband and wife as a type of Christ in the church. Now, the usual humanistic approach to these statements is a reversal of the order of precedence and says, in effect, quote, Paul, trying to make these divine mysteries plain, took ordinary human standards and facts and stated that these things very dimly, vaguely represent to us the divine mysteries which cannot be known. Thus, the reality is the family, the father and his children, which in a faint way give us the divine reality behind it. This is anthropomorphic speech, end quote. Actually, the reverse is true. It is not the human family, the human fatherhood, which is the basic reality. Rather, for Paul, it is a type or shadow, and the fatherhood of God is the ultimate reality. The relationship of Christ to his church is the basic reality of which the relationship of husband to wife is a shadow, a setting forth of the same principle. God is the father of all fatherhoods, and human fatherhood is but a faint reflection of the eternal relationship of the ontological trinity, of the Father to the Son. Our human fellowship, governments, relationships, are shadows, therefore, of a reality which exists in the internal relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All the basic relationships of life, therefore, are derived from the eternal standard of the internal life of the Godhead. Here, then, is the basic biblical premise which the concept of anthropomorphisms bypasses and destroys. In terms of this concept of wisdom, the priority in all categories of thought of the ontological trinity, there is no law, no society, no justice, no structure, no design, no meaning, apart from God. And all these aspects and relationships of society are types of that which exists in the Godhead. This, accordingly, has a tremendous implication in terms of the unity of life and learning. Wherever man asserts his independence of God, saying in effect that, while he will deny God, he will not deny life, nor its relationships, values, or society, its science and art, he is involved in contradiction. In terms of these neglected biblical presuppositions, it is an impossibility for man to deny God and still have law and order, justice, science, anything apart from God. The more man and society depart from God, the more they depart from all reality, the more they are caught in the net of self-contradiction and self-frustration, the more they are involved in the will to destruction and the love of death. Proverbs 8.36 quote, By me kings reign and princes decree justice. End quote. Quote, all they that hate me love death. End quote. For man to turn his back on God, therefore, is to turn towards death. It involves, ultimately, the renunciation of every aspect of life. Thus, every government, whether it be a Christian state or not, cannot live apart from God. Insofar as it has any kind of law and order, any kind of justice, it is a traitor to itself because it thereby affirms God. Likewise, 
every science, however it may outwardly deny God, if it asserts that there is fundamental structure and law in the universe, as exemplified, for instance, in the second law of thermodynamics, in the second law of thermodynamics, is a traitor to itself. Because while denying God, it works in terms of fundamental structures which are an impossibility apart from God. To deny God, man must ultimately deny that there is any law or reality. The full implications of this were seen in the last century by two profound thinkers, one a Christian, the other a non-Christian. Nietzsche recognised fully that every atheist is an unwilling believer to the extent that he has any element of justice or order in his life, to the very extent that he is even alive and enjoys life. In his earlier writings, Nietzsche first attempted the creation of another set of standards and values, affirming life for a time, until he concluded that he could not affirm life itself or give it any meaning, any value, apart from God. Thus Nietzsche's ultimate counsel was suicide. Only then can we truly deny God. And in his own life, this brilliant thinker, one of the clearest in his description of modern Christianity and the contemporary issue, did, in effect, commit a kind of psychic suicide. The same concept was powerfully developed by Dostoevsky, particularly in particularly in The Possessed, or, more literally, The Demon Possessed. Kirillov, a thoroughly Nietzschean character, is much concerned with denying God, asserting that he himself is God, and that man does not need God. But at every point Kirillov finds that no standard or structure in reality can be affirmed without ultimately asserting God, and that no value can be asserted without being ultimately derived from the triune God. As a result, Kirillov committed suicide as the only apparent practical way of denying God and affirming himself, for to be alive was to affirm this ontological deity in some fashion. The philosophical implications of all this have been lost on the wretched and beggarly thinking which has characterised so much of Christian philosophy. Happily, in recent years, there has been a development of a consistent Christian philosophy, beginning with Abraham Kuyper's use of Calvin's premise, and advanced powerfully in this country by Cornelius Van Til. This position is that affirmed in all scripture. Consider the implications of the following passages. 1. Wisdom in Proverbs 3.18 is called the tree of life. 2. In John 8.51, quote, If any man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. End quote. 3. Quote, Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. End quote. Proverbs 28.5 Again, in 1 John 2.20, we have this far-reaching statement, quote, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. End quote. These are amazing affirmations. Quote, they that seek the Lord understand all things. End quote. Quote, ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. End quote. Clearly, our knowledge of all things is not exhaustive or particular, 
nor is our knowledge omniscient. Such knowledge is possible only with God. How then do we actually know all things? Let us re-examine this statement. If, when we become truly Christian and are aware of its true implications, having the unction from the Holy One, we know all things. Conversely, if we have not Christ, an unction from the Holy One, we know nothing. Thus we must say to the unbeliever, quote, For all your learning, you know nothing. End quote. On the on the other hand, a consistently Christian education, having this concept of the unity of learning, must more specifically affirm to be Christian and have an unction from the Holy One means to know all things in principle. This means that, in knowing Christ, we know him by whom all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 1 to 17. As a result, Nothing is understandable except in terms of Christ, in terms of his creative will. All secular learning is involved in a fundamental contradiction. It must act on the assumption of a unity of law and meaning while denying the very existence of it or its implications. It acts on the premise of the sovereignty of law while it asserts chance. Quote, By him were all things made and without him was not anything made that was made, end quote. No interpretation or meaning can logically exist apart from him. There is an eternal decree, an eternal purpose, and nothing is understandable except in terms of that presupposition. Knowing Christ, we know all things. We have the fundamental principle of interpretation. Secular learning is involved in self-contradiction, is continually denying itself, For example, in the study of the theory of numbers in so many universities, in dealing with the question of what a number is, it is denied that a number has any correspondence with reality. But if numbers have no correspondence to reality, why study mathematics? If arithmetic and mathematics have no relationship to life, if they are simply arbitrary, why study them? But to affirm a relationship to reality a fundamental reality represented in numbers, is to affirm that there is a fundamental reality to which man is accountable. In the study of philosophy and the theory of values, we again face this same relativity. Education then becomes much ado about nothing. Why the concern for advances in education when all is set in the context of present and ultimate relativity? Why this tremendous energy to create values in education and in society if relativity governs all? Why laws? Nietzsche was here more honest than Dewey. There are philosophers who have felt it essential to all philosophies of science that they deny the concept of causality, for to assert causality is, in some fashion, to assert an eternal decree behind all reality. Hence, in the place of causality, the concept of probability is affirmed, which says, in effect, that thus far we have found phenomena dependable, but we have no way of knowing that, in the next instance, a completely contrary phenomenon may not appear. By this bit of dodging, the implications of causality are sidestepped. To assert causality 
is to assert ultimately and by implication an eternal decree behind the phenomena of creation? Is it any wonder that education is no longer a means of life, but a matter of state coercion? In every area, we have what can only be characterized as intellectual schizophrenia, a split personality. On the one hand, modern man, quote-unquote Christian and non-Christian, in dealing with the practical necessities of any particular area of science or learning, must be theistic, must assume the ontological trinity, in that he must posit an eternal decree, a unity in life and learning, and a correspondence to ultimate reality of numbers, etc. Let him hold to as radical a relativism as he may, he still acts in terms of an eternal decree. As a result, he is caught in the tension of the intellectual schizophrenia and is a divided person, a house divided against itself. The growing tension of modern life is due precisely to this schizophrenic element in all learning. The more relevant science and learning become to everyday life, the more irrelevant they become in theory. Man is schizoid in his attempt to function apart from God, to use the things of this creation while denying their creator and the eternal decree behind all reality. Man, apart from God, is guilty of what Van Til calls the kinetic wish, the desire that there be no God. But whenever and wherever man tries to eliminate God, he ends up by eliminating all reality. He has increasingly denied aspects of his experience and of reality, because no place can be given it in his philosophy. Note, for example, psychologies which refuse to speak of the mind and refer in passing to consciousness as an epiphenomenon outside the scope of relevance. To face consistently the problem of mind and consciousness is, as one writer warned, to lead to the supernatural. Instead, the language has been one of drives, impulses, motivations, not of the mind or consciousness. To eliminate God as the ontological principle is to emasculate reality. This is seen as clearly in contemporary theology as anywhere else, as witness Karl Barth. Barth posits a Kantian God, who is, in essence, an aspect of human consciousness, is so afraid of power and being in itself that he maintains that if God were power in himself, omnipotent, he would be the devil. Quote, For the Almighty is bad as power in itself is bad. The Almighty means chaos, evil, the devil. We could not better describe and define the devil by, th- by trying to think this idea of a self-based, free, sovereign ability. End quote. As a consequence, such a philosophy tends to a distrust of all power and dominion, and in effect, renounces the very creation mandate of man to exercise dominion, to become an appointed bearer of God's power and his vicegerent, and to exercise that dominion in its fullest scope in every area of knowledge. Thus, a consistently Christian philosophy of education alone can deal honestly with reality, for, in affirming the Creator, it alone can do justice to creation. By recognising that God is He by whom all things were made, 
and without him was not anything made that was made, it affirms the one principle by which we truly can know all things. According to Romans 1.18, as John Murray and others render it, quote, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness, end quote. Here is the essence of the matter. Truth is inescapable. What characterizes man is not so much a failure in learning as an ethical revolt against the implications of what he knows. He recognizes the eternal decree, sees it everywhere manifested, but holds down the implications of this truth in unrighteousness and suppresses it because it destroys his autonomy. The result is an insuperable tension. Modern man, being a split personality, schizophrenic, ultimately reaches the crisis, the breakdown of all schizophrenic personalities in his inability to maintain an existence in such sharp contradiction to itself. Modern education is schizophrenic, holding down the truth as the only means of perpetuating modern man's claim to autonomy. If necessary, all meaning must be denied in order to maintain this strange freedom. A telling instance of this is Herbert J. Muller's comments on quote, the misuses of the past, end quote. Muller finds man's freedom precisely in the absence of any governing principle in history and the absence of objective reality apart from man. To restate the biblical premise in order to develop it further, reality is ultimately personal because the ontological trinity is personal. Every aspect of life, society, authority, fatherhood, community, etc. is a shadow or type of the ultimate and full reality of the internal relationships of the ontological trinity. Greek philosophy, believing as it did in ultimate impersonalism, developed the concept of anthropomorphism, an idea in terms of which the church has almost consistently and insistently read the Bible. For example, it became important to insist that God is passionless, passion being a frailty of personality, and to read the biblical statements of God's wrath, jealousy, laughter and delight as anthropomorphisms used in condescension to a primitive humanity. The unhappy consequences of Hellenic thought have been ably traced by Charles Norris Cochrane, Christianity and Classical Culture, 1940. With Cochrane, we can speak of the classical modern position as against the Christian. In the classical modern view, change is ultimate, set in a sea of impersonality. Whatever universals may be affirmed, the good, the true and the beautiful remain abstractions, impersonal in essence. The problem of the one and the many becomes insuperable. Either a meaningless sea of oneness or an equally meaningless universe of endless and unrelated particularity. The Christian, on the other hand, working on the premise of the ontological trinity, can think and act on the presupposition of the coterminity of the universal and the particular in the Godhead. He denies, moreover, the existence of brute factuality. Every fact is an interpreted fact. Man either creates his factuality by his own principle of interpretation and thus becomes his own God, or he accepts the fact of creation 
and that God's creative purpose alone makes the fact what it is, and that no true interpretation is possible apart from him. But, as Van Til has observed, quote, The idea of brute, that is, utterly uninterpreted, fact, is the presupposition to the finding of any fact of scientific standing. A, quote, fact, unquote, does not become a fact according to the modern scientist's assumptions till it has been made a fact by the ultimate definitory power of the mind of man. The modern scientist, pretending merely to be a describer of facts, is in reality a maker of facts. He makes facts as he describes. His description is itself the manufacturing of facts. He requires material to make facts, but the material he requires must be raw material. Anything else will break his machinery. The datum is not primarily given, but is primarily taken. It appears then that a universal judgment about the nature of all existence is presupposed even in the description of the modern scientist. It appears further that this universal judgment negates the heart of the Christian theistic point of view. According to any consistently Christian position, God, and God only, has ultimate definitory power. God's description or plan of the fact makes the fact what it is. What modern scientists ascribes to the mind of man, Christianity ascribes to God. End quote. To consider again the underlying impersonalism of the classical modern position, its inevitable corollary is this, that the higher the development of intelligence and culture, the greater its impersonalism, the more necessary its abstractness. Some religions and philosophies see the goal as the end of the principle of individuation, as absorption into the cosmic sea of nothingness, or God as the case may be. But man being a person, and his life a very personal matter, it is impossible for a culture to develop this concept of impersonalism without again manifesting a schizoid life. Consider, for example, the consequences in music. At about the same time that music became, on the one hand, atonal, intellectual and impersonal, jazz arose at the other end of the musical scale to affirm an anti-intellectual and completely atomistic personalism. One of the defenders of jazz has stated, quote, Jazz has no need of intelligence, it only needs feeling. End quote. Both extremes represent triumphs of musical virtuosity, certainly, but more than that, both exist in terms of an assumed ultimacy of impersonalism. This impersonality intellectual music celebrates at the price of its wider appeal. This impersonality jazz reacts against with a wild and hopeless personalism, with an eat, drink and be merry, or tomorrow we die philosophy. It is, as Weaver has remarked, quote, a music not of dreams, certainly not of our metaphysical dream, but of drunkenness, end quote. And yet the strength of jazz is precisely its presentation of an available personalism in a world of impersonalism, and hence its appeal in communist countries where so much more rigorous and impersonalism of life and philosophy prevails.
So powerful is the impact of jazz in the communist peoples that some jazz musicians have come to fancy themselves as symbols of freedom, which in an extremely limited sense they are, and yet the blind affirmation of an anarchistic emotionalism is no weapon against the tyranny of impersonalism, whether of the universe, society, or mass man, but a tribute to its power and the surrender of the rest of life to impersonalism. In art, a similar picture appears, a coincidence in the rise of abstractionism and a totally personal and incommunicative and incommunicative emotionalism. In poetry, a similar development has occurred. A poem need no longer mean something, but must only be. The details can be cited at length. Suffice it to say that they merely repeat this fact. When impersonalism is assumed to be ultimate, then the higher the development of intelligence and culture, the greater its impersonalism, the more necessary its abstractness. Because man cannot accept this necessary conclusion to his cultural striving, he himself being too personal a fact, he inevitably becomes schizophrenic in his life and culture. His education accordingly loses all concept of any unity of learning. Progressive education has tried to remedy this lack and give relationship to learning by relating it to everyday life. But the relationship is made at the wrong end. It is useless to try to relate arithmetic to savings and thrift, to interest and investment, if one does not consider life worth living to begin with, if the values of economy and investment have no significance. As a result, progressive education has tended to further a retreat into an anarchistic personalism in which the lonely ego seeks defences against a vast impersonalism. To emphasise the meaninglessness of the whole by explication or implication is to force either total pessimism or unwarranted egocentricity on the lonely particular man. He becomes, in modern terminology, consumption-centred, no longer creative and productive, but concerned essentially with getting his share out of the whole meaningless mess. In terms of such an outlook, algebra, science, history and English are singularly irrelevant matters. Depending on one's personal inclinations, an interest can be cultivated in certain subjects, but it is a purely subjective reaction. There is no sense of cultural necessity, no feeling that these skills constitute initiation into the life and culture of modern man, and are hence indispensable. The sense of urgency and learning which the tribesman gives his son is lacking in our culture. We have created an imposing structure and declared its foundations to be irrelevant. Here, the consistently Christian educator who has an epistemological self-consciousness is in a radically different position. He can teach in the confidence that there is a unity of learning in his school and that the ontological trinity is the presupposition of all factuality and that all facts are created facts and hence God-given and consistent facts. He can avoid thereby the intellectual schizophrenia of our age for himself and his students. However, if an ostensibly Christian teacher attempts to function on the alien presuppositions of ultimate impersonalism, then 
his tension and self-contradiction, is the most radical of any. To add Christianity to an essentially alien curriculum, which more respectable, is ultimately as frenetic a step as the affirmation of a personalist faith in jazz. It is self-destructive and schizophrenic. A faith in a personal God cannot survive against the background of a world of impersonalism as portrayed in the average curriculum. Parochial authority often maintains the Christian conformity of such schools, but they are nonetheless instruments of secularization, instruments in the furtherance of a worldview of ultimate pessimism and impersonalism. The coercive conformity of the parochial school masks the radical inner disunity, so that, while it may at times offer better discipline and more classical concepts of ed- and more classical concepts of educational requirements, it nonetheless fails to give an inner unity to learning, and it is the inner unity of learning rather than an outward conformity to a common authority or standard which is our concern. This is not to disparage the value of true conformity, of course. One of the most dangerous tendencies today, in any consideration of education, is to be seduced by the heady wine of nostalgia. Even as too much extraneous training is asked of the schools today, too much is ascribed to the schools of yesterday. Consider, for example, Clifton Fadiman's excellent and pointed account of his own high school education between 1916 and 1920. He attended an average school with students, all of whom would now be called underprivileged, was taught a standard course which included four years of English with a rigorous drill in composition, grammar and public speaking, four years of German, three years of French, three or four years of classical European and American history, plus a course in civics, one year of physics, one year of biology, three years of mathematics through trigonometry. All of this gave Fadiman a capacity for self-education. It also guaranteed that he would never be a member of a lost generation. But why stop with Fadiman's day? Why not look back to Franklin, Massachusetts, more than a century earlier? Horace Mann, who despised the training he received, was, in six months, prepared for college by Samuel Barrett, genius and alcoholic, whom the tough Calvinists felt to be still a valid teacher, who gave more English grammar, Latin and Greek in his course, than collegians received today. Man mastered Latin grammar and read Corderius, Aesop's Fables, the Aeneid, with parts of the Georgics and Bucolics, Cicero's select orations, the Gospels, and part of the Epistles in Greek, and part of the Greca Majora and Minora. What made Fadiman's education possible, and what made man's? Fadiman gives us an interesting insight into his schooling when he comments that, though underprivileged, his fellow students, coming from classes now producing, quote, the largest quota of juvenile delinquents, unquote, were still so well behaved that the, quote, one scandalous case, unquote, during his four years in high school, involved the theft by a student of a pair of rubbers. Today, the most privileged public high school might be pleased to report no greater a student offence. And with such a disciplined student body, who would not fail to teach more effectively? 
the child of man's day was definitely full of deviltry, often of a rougher sort. But he had a quick response to authority and recognized a responsibility to learn, and recognized a responsibility to learn. This, in lesser form, existed in Fadiman's high school. The intense sense of responsibility of New England Calvinism is absent in modern youth. Granted the desirability of basic education, but will a change of curriculum alter the educational scene? After all, some of the teachers who today most conscientiously adhere to basic education often have, except with a few students, the most trying time. And, granted that some students have marked aptitudes and take to solid study, how much subsistence is there to an education that rests on aptitude rather than exists as a means to a necessity of life? To be specific, here is the case of a young scientific technician, still in his mid-twenties, already active in a highly promising career in advanced electronics, having had subsidised training and a guaranteed future. On the basis of aptitude, all this has been highly congenial. However, he has now discovered another aptitude which delights him even more, and being a member of an unrestricted and permissive generation, he boasts of it naively with vicious pride. He is a successful male prostitute for women. Aptitude certainly is important, but as an anarchistic principle, it is destructive and dangerous. Aptitude in itself conveys no standard, no law, no true framework of reference. The fallacy of nostalgia is that it tries to read into yesterday's education the latter-day effects and residue of American Puritanism, the ambitious self-discipline and imitative seal of immigrant families, the now dead respect for higher things, once common in a measure to all groups, the now decaying authority of the home, church, school and society as against the state and so on. The courses Fadiman studied can be restored to the public high school, but the same students, with that same world behind them, can never be recalled. And, valuable as Fadiman's high school was to him, he is more definitely a product of that broader schooling. What, then, is the answer? Are we to neglect matters of curriculum? Certainly not. But we must see them in their proper place and perspective. And, important as a Catholic training and basic education requirements may be, it is of far more importance to hold to a concept of the unity of learning. And it is the privilege of the consistent Christian that he can approach education without nostalgia, being committed not to a point in the past, but to the development of Christian epistemological self-consciousness in the present and future. Churches indeed tend to look to an ideal past in terms of privilege, power, opportunity and success. But nostalgia is a luxury which only the dying can afford. Let the dead therefore bury the dead. The living have work to do. The Christian's concern is epistemological self-consciousness. It is to declare that no fact is a fact apart from the ontological trinity that all facts are personal facts precisely because they have been created by a personal God who alone is the true source of their interpretation and that 
because the whole created universe came into being by the act of that one God, whose eternal decree undergirds all reality. Learning is not illusory, and all learning has a fundamental unity. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.